Gabby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the media each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny, an urban planner at Gould Evans in Kansas City, and I am joined today by our usual co-host, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Welcome. Hey, Abby. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you, too. Uh, for people who are just listening to this, um, which is everybody, we actually can see each other on <laughs> as we're recording this. Well, and I hope you know, we do get a lot of requests. And internally, the team at Strong Towns would love us to share the video of these. Um, but, you know, we, you and I have been reluctant to do that up to this point. But I, I think you're going to come under increasing pressure to say yes to that, Abby. Okay. Okay. I'll have to <laughs> dress professionally. Well, that's just, that's just it. Oh, my hair. Just kidding. I am at work no, right now. So <laughs> it is nice. I mean, I'm wearing my Minnesota, University of Minnesota sweatshirt. It is nice to be able to do these chillaxed, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and you have a yeah. really cool background. Uh, with this all is the my studio. And- yeah, yeah. So it's pretty so neat. I record a lot of stuff in here, and I just come in here because the sound is really good. Um, but yeah, I've got the nice background and all that. Yeah, I'm I'm in our our office has a podcast room and on yeah. in the I, I wouldn't say basement, but the first floor, and um, it's well, it's a nursing room, but it, I call it a <laughs> podcast room. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay. um, yeah, it doesn't really have a cool background, so we'll have to uh, yeah. spruce it up if we do that. Yeah, well, w- invite the moms in. That that would be a very, I, I mean, that would be very nice. Um, yeah, yeah. I know I've kind I, of commandeered it, um, yeah. you know, once a week, so. Yeah, it's all right. I remember yeah. back in those days, and uh, yeah, my wife um, always had to find a place and so, yeah, so you've taken over the place. That's good. Yes, for one hour per week. So we haven't had any issues with that, thankfully. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, no, it's good that we have this space uh, in our office. So well, let's uh, do this. Yeah. So the article that we are going to be talking today is uh, covered by Patch, written by Eric Kiefer, and it is entitled Who Owns Newark? City Fights Back Against Corporate Home Buying Spree. So the Rutgers Center for Law, Inequality, and Metropolitan Equity released a report highlighting a statistic that says nearly half of residential property in the city of Newark, New New Jersey, is owned by corporations, which is the highest rate in the nation. Between 2017 and 2020, 40% of one to four unit buildings were sold to investors. And in 2010, that percentage was less than 20. Three are large, three of the largest buyers are real estate companies, which appear to be operating as new large scale corporate landlords, essentially. And many of the properties were bought by completely anonymous investors. So elected officials in Newark are aware of this trend and have invested in several programs to combat corporate home buying in favor of affordable local ownership. More recently, the mayor of Newark, Roz Baraka, announced a new package of measures, including making it unlawful to solicit offers 
without residents' permission, drafting legislation to bring more transparency to LLCs, and then imposing fees on landlords that increase rents above 5% per year and redirecting those fees to an affordable housing trust fund. The mayor of Newark is also aware that this is not exclusively a local issue, stating that in cities and even suburbs across America, institutional investors are eroding the American dream of home ownership as they convert owner-occupied homes into corporately owned rental units. So this is obviously a growing issue, but it's not necessarily illegal. And it does have critical implications for communities across the nation. And I think I want to first start by digging into this notion of ownership and local ownership and decentralized ownership and why that is important from a strong town's perspective. Do you think that local and decentralized ownership is critical to this overall concept of strong towns and the philosophy of strong towns? That's a really good question. Because I was like, where where should we start with this? Because there's so many things that intersect here. You know, my gut answer is yes. I, I think local ownership you know, we talk about neighborhoods growing strong and, and resilient over time. And that model depends on a broad distribution of ownership. I mean, it depends on the people living there being owners of what they're living in and uh, and participating in the, the, uh, the, you know, the building and the maturing and the prosperity of that neighborhood. So in that sense, yeah, the institutional ownership is a, is a long-term barrier towards local prosperity. I think though the urgent thing that I see, I know there's some nuance about about what corporate ownership means and we should get into that, but let's look at the big macro picture. I've used this analogy perhaps even before on the show. I I heard it a, a while back and I think it's really, really good. When you think of physics, we recognize that like in the real world, there's a certain Newtonian physics to things where, you know, if you drop something, it will fall at a certain rate. We can measure that. If you slide something along the ground, it will have a certain momentum and then friction force and all this. And it's, it's very classical physics. We understand how it all works. But we also recognize that when you get to objects that are really, really large, think like a sun or a black hole, or you get to objects that are very, very small, like the quantum realm, all those things we know about classical physics breaks down. It stops working. And when we look at our economy, I think there's a really good analogy there because day to day, we recognize how most things work, right? In a real economy, we are able to uh, present money for a down payment, buy a house in a competitive marketplace. We're able to, in a sense, compete with other people of similar means uh, in order to purchase that home. It's going to have a relationship to how much we can earn on our wages, uh, what our relationship is if we're married and we can combine their income or you know, what our life goals are. There's some basic things that work in like a classic realm. But when you get into the realm of the very, very big and the very, very small, it starts to break down. And what we have seen really since the housing crisis is that we have empowered through increased financialization of the economy on the large end. And then in particular, since the pandemic, where we just literally like sloshed trillions of dollars into the economy, we have created these very, very big players that like gravity don't play by the same rules that we all do. 
And things are weird and spooky in that realm. And they've distorted everything. I have this debate over how big the corporate buying influence is. And I've had people say, you know, it's it's everything. Like this report seems to suggest, you know, that it's the overwhelming thing impacting affordability today. And I, I think that's an exaggeration. I don't think that's true. But I also don't think that it can be minimized. I think it's a big effect because every time there's a sale on a house, the house goes to the person or the entity or the corporation or whoever who is willing to pay the most. I mean, that's generally like how it works. And if you have a player in your market that is, in a sense, drunk with liquidity, that has so much cash that they have to get out the door, that paying 5% more is like not a big deal or paying 10% more is not a big deal. They become the kingpin of the market. They become the market maker. They become the floor at which everything else won't fall beneath. And that does distort the market in really crazy ways that that make individuals and individuals trying to compete in that marketplace just very ineffective and and quite frankly have taken the market out of being a local housing market and made it a national financialized market in in almost every way meaningful yeah exactly i think the financialization piece of this is what naturally attracts these huge buyers to the housing market and you know what strikes me is that the suburban model of development seems to be a natural fit for large investors like this because you can essentially build a subdivision all at once and then sell it as a package which does happen in places and you know those investors can rent it for the first life cycle and then maybe offload those houses when the maintenance bill comes due in 15 20 years um, either to individual owners or maybe a giant slumlord. I don't know what that might Indeed. look like. Yep. Um, but what this article is addressing is a little bit different. It's the issue of corporate owners in established urban neighborhoods, which is more of a scattershot investment issue spatially rather than like a huge subdivision being owned by one giant entity. Take my neighborhood, for example. It has a pretty broad variety of different ownership models from uh, LLCs that are, you know, owned by the person who lives next door to out-of-state LLCs to uh, owner-occupiers. And so I think that what I wish this study did that it doesn't do is kind of dig in to these LLCs because the methodology that they use is basically defining institutional buyer as any property that is an LLC, corp, inc, limited liability, or management. And what that does is it kind of casts this broad net over um, what is a pretty common ownership model. And making an LLC doesn't cost very much, and you can own um, an investment property as someone living in a neighborhood locally using that which is very, very different than a giant investment firm that has tons of different LLCs and they're buying up lots and lots of different properties, which, which to their credit, they did do some digging to identify those types of owners. But without looking into each LLC individually to determine who is really behind the LLC, it's difficult, I think, to make broad conclusions about what's going on and not only... Uh, this city, but but any city. It, it is. Let, let me, though, give this nuance because I think the shift... 
So a lot of people will create limited liability companies and use that to buy residential real estate. And I think the first thing that's important to note about that is that if you are doing that as an LLC, you don't qualify for traditional mortgage financing. Like you can't get mm-hmm. an FHA loan, right? Yeah. As an LLC. Exactly. You're not purchasing like a standard product that is going to go Fannie and Freddie and 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 secondary market in that way. It's not a residential mortgage product the way that, you know, you and I own a home. Our our product is a traditional mortgage, residential mortgage product. So having an LLC doesn't necessarily reflect that it is mega corporations owning these homes as opposed to, you know, you buying up the rental place next door and making it in a rental property, which is a, a really good viable model for a neighborhood, right? So it doesn't really suggest that, you know, these, these are bad actors or, or people preying on the neighborhood as opposed to people who are building it. But what it does suggest is that the financing is coming from a different place, right? If, if I own a residential home and I put it on the market and I sell it to you, there are tax implications for me uh, if I don't turn around and buy another home. There are things that I have to deal with from a tax standpoint. If I take an LLC and buy a property, and then I'm going to sell you that property, I'm not going to sell you the property. I'm going to just transfer ownership of the LLC if we're working in a commercial market. And then that has no, I mean, the tax implications on that are like vastly different. They, they're completely different and, and advantageous in many ways. And so you what you are doing is you are creating or what it signals is that the larger player in the market today in a city like Newark is not money that is flowing through traditional mortgage programs where individuals would go in, qualify for a loan, make a down payment. But the money, 52% of the money is flowing through uh, more um, investment types of, uh, of financing. Yeah, it's dumb money. And it's really difficult to compete with dumb money. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, let me put a face on dumb money. And this is one of like many examples. But, you know, the Bitcoin bro who got in at <laughs> $5,000 and now has Bitcoin at, you know, 60000 at one point. It's now down to thirty. But Yeah, they should probably know, sell. <laughs> yeah, they should have sold a while ago. But like, you know, you, you, you look at it and like that person needs a place to stash cash. And... Yeah, I mean, buy buy up the house in the neighborhood and have it cat, you know, get a little bit of cash and and have it um, pay the insurance and and give you a little bit of positive cash flow. The Bitcoin bro who did that is actually doing really well today because they got out of Bitcoin and got into it an asset that has thus far held its value better. I think the implications of this is that you know there's a lot of talk about the housing market being frothy, and I think that it has. This, this type of investment has driven up the, the price of housing and made it a lot more unaffordable for traditional buyers. But I think it also is going to make the market more volatile as well. Um, because if, if, if you have a mortgage in a house that you live in and it drops by 20%, a lot of people are going to be underwater very quickly and their mortgage does, stops making sense. But if you're a Bitcoin bro and you bought a house and you, it, it drops by 20%, you're actually better off because your Bitcoin's dropped by 50%. You know? So that as an investment is, is not a bad thing at that point. 
it's not very liquid and it's tough to get out of and and getting if, if they get out of it in mass but a lot of these things are being bought in that sense without a lot of leverage there is a lot of leverage in the market though and when you get into the big corporate players they're the ones who are getting the ridiculously low you know the, the, they're getting the ridiculously cheap money so essentially zero interest rates or very low interest rates or interest rates far less than inflation and then are putting that to work in these places. And I think the question is how fickle are they going to be if the housing market slows down or even starts to drop? And they may be very fickle. Yeah, well, and I think one of the things that articles like this and this subject um, as a whole brings up is just the concern about it impacting who is a have and who's a have not, right? Because the American dream is this idea that is so deeply ingrained into our culture and our national rhetoric. And if if home ownership is kind of the key piece of that for creating a middle class, wealth building, opportunity for people, and that becomes less and less of an opportunity for people who are renting right now, it it's like does the federal government need to revisit the programs that have been established over the last several decades? I mean, it's been 70 years now since all of the interventions that took place in the 1950s. And while, you know, generational wealth through homeownership has benefited some people, you know, mostly white people, how do you address this issue now of basically all people not being able to compete with this corporate money um, under this narrative, you know, saying that this is something that will continue to grow and basically, you know, at worst case, dominate the entire market. Well, this is a, a part of the book that Daniel Harrigus and I are, are, are writing right now. Uh, this is kind of gets to, to my part of it, which is, you know, housing as shelter is one thing. How do we get people into housing and have them have a, a place to live that is safe and secure and sanitary and, you know, fits their family needs. That, that, that's one issue. And I think if we go back to the Great Depression, a lot of the financial products that we instituted at that time, the 30-year mortgage, the secondary market, you know, assisting with down, down payments, a, a lot of these things we did were designed to get people into or keep people in shelter that they were through no fault of their own getting kicked out of because of just the, the way the, the the Great Depression changed financial markets very quickly. After World War II, we discovered that so many of those products worked great to keep the economy from collapsing and keep people in their house. But we could turn around and shift those and use those same products to really grow the economy. And in doing that, what we created was a situation where housing is not shelter any longer. It, it is shelter, but it also serves this other purpose of investment. And I think you can kind of look at this evolution over time in a very like coarse way of saying it was, uh, you know, 95% shelter and 5% investment uh, during the Great Depression. And over time, that has that percentage has started to shift. Where at some point it went, it's fifty-fifty investment in shelter. And now I, I think you can make the case that for 
in in a lot of situations, it's ninety nine percent investment and one percent shelter. You know, it, housing has become a financial investment, not a place where you live, and that changes everything about how we we deal with housing. And and I think you can see, you know, the stock market. We all were kind of shocked and like didn't understand, and I think reasonably so, why when a pandemic started and all of the metrics of how you would judge a business were going down, the stock prices for all these businesses were going up. Like, how does this happen? I don't know if you followed like a company like Zoom. You're like, well, Zoom, everybody's going to work from home now and it's going to be great. Zoom is actually valued less on the stock market today than it was before the pandemic. That company is worth less now than it was uh, in in you know February of 2020. That's really interesting. I wonder Th- that's, why. That's really interesting, isn't it? Well, why? Because that run up, what happened during the pandemic was we got to keep everything going. So just pump money out into the economy. Just get get money out there, and and you know a lot of people who were getting that money were people who didn't necessarily you know need the money. Um, and so what do you do with money you don't need? You invest it and grow it because you might need it someday, right? You, you want to have money for the future. And so money went into crazy stocks. Money went into other financial instruments. People bought real estate investment trusts and, and all kinds of stuff. And you just saw every asset class go up. Housing, yes, is shelter. All of us live in a home. But housing is also a financial product. And what you see is that with the craziness of the market going on is also reflected in the housing market because it's the same craziness. It's a financial product. I think that idea of, you know, whether you emphasize housing as an investment versus shelter and kind of that ratio is really fascinating because there is this kind of notion that, you know, if you have a neighborhood of homeowners, they are all here because they're invested in the community and they're going to be good stewards of the community. And if people are renters, they are passersby and simply consumers of the city rather than stewards. And I think that that kind of perspective kind of flips it on, flips that argument on its head a little bit because if people are owners, not because they love a neighborhood and love their place and want to be good stewards of it, but because they are buying that house as a shorter term investment. They plan to stay for five, maybe 10 years, maybe not be that invested in what's going on in the community and buy a bigger house down the road. That is an ownership perspective. It's not always that somebody buys a house because they want to be deeply involved in a neighborhood and be a part of it. And I think that that's important to point out because I think in some cases there are even renters who are deeply uh, invested in a neighborhood in an emotional sense and dedicated to a place, but they may not be an owner for various different reasons. I mean, there's tons of reasons outside of you know not having the capacity financially to not be an owner. And so I just think that it's that that thought kind of provides some nuance on this renter versus ownership um, dichotomy. Well, let, let, let's put two like extremes on this. You own a house in a neighborhood and you decide tomorrow, like, I don't like the way this neighborhood is going. 
I'm going to get out of this house while the getting is good and move to some other neighborhood that I think is going to benefit, is going to work better for me. The, the transaction time of doing that, let's go back five years or let's go back 15 or 20 years. The transaction time in doing that is really long, right? We got to get the house in condition to sell. We got to go find a realtor. We got to get it listed. We got to find a buyer. We have to go through closing. We got, it's a long process. Let's go to the far end of the spectrum. Uh, I bought Zoom because I think Zoom is going to go up because there's a pandemic and everyone's going to work from home and it's great. But then one day I decide, you know what? I'm not sure about the future of this company. I'm going to divest in Zoom. Literally, it is one click of the mouse and you are divested of Zoom. It's gone. It takes less than one fraction of one second to make that transaction happen. What has happened to housing is that housing has become, as the market's gotten more corporate, gotten more liquid, it's become more like Zoom, the stock, right? Or more like 3M stock or Target stock or name your, name your company stock. It's become more like that stock. And so what it means is that if you, Abby, decide, I want out of this neighborhood, you can sell your house tomorrow re really easily. Like we could list oh, your yeah. house. It could be gone with a week. You could be moved in 40 days or 30 days. And, and Well, and, we wouldn't even need to list it. That's the thing. You wouldn't even need to list like, it, Like we right. get letters. I just we, go. Right. My banker is calling me trying to get yeah. us to sell our house. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. This and is so a crazy the market, market has shifted, right, to be more like that stock ticker for Zoom, that stock that you can trade on the exchange. But the problem you get with that is you get the volatility and the craziness of a stock of an exchange where prices go way up and it's it's you know historically we would call this irrational exuberance. Uh, I think what you're seeing is just like high volumes of liquidity pumped into the market. Um, but the the opposite side of that is that it it could go down too. Someone asked me uh, the other day, what what do I think their house will be worth five years from now? <laughs> and I'm like, they okay, asked, first of all, is it because you're you're Chuck Marone, the real estate agent? Yeah, the no, it's I'm, real estate yeah, agent. I don't know what I am. <laughs> huh, they thought I had some insight on this. Yeah. I said, here's here's my here's my take. If your house today is worth uh, half a million dollars, I think that five years from now, if you told me your house was going to be worth two million dollars. I, I would not be surprised by that. If you told me that five years from now, your house was going to be worth half a million dollars, I would not be surprised by that. But if you told me that five years from now, your house was worth half a million like it is today, that would actually surprise me. In other words, I don't think the market is stable. I think it is more unstable than it's ever been, but predicting which way that stability will like instability will work itself out and reach an equilibrium, I think is the big open question. Yeah, definitely, definitely an open question. And I think there and is going to affect of, this. Yeah, this corporate ownership thing is wrapped up in that, right? Yes, totally. And there is this sense of like, is this, you know, the big short <laughs> you think about, uh, you know, everything that happened 15 years ago. And I, I think a lot of people are wondering, are we kind of in the same situation or is it not a bubble? Is it just something that's going to keep going up now that there's all this additional money in the system now? And it's really unclear. Yeah. In the big, in the sense of the big short, if you're looking at a macro, like, is this a bubble or not? Um, the answer is like, yes, are we, we're just living in a huge financial bubble. How it works itself out is a big question. 
if you're talking about the big short, like, will, are we going to have the same effect? I actually think that it's a very different cause this point. It's less um, kind of internal fraud and graft, like getting a bunch of people who can't afford houses to buy houses they can't afford. Um, I don't think that's the, the, I don't think that's the issue right now. It, it's, it's the way it works out for families, right? Because everybody to get into a house today has to stretch beyond not just their comfort level, but they actually have to project out into the future uh, a really rosy scenario in terms of their own earnings and upward potential in order to swallow that pill and buy a house, you know? Yeah, because people are, you know, theoretically overpaying. They're massively right overpaying, now. right? If, but if, if the housing market goes down, they're massively overpaying. But if yes. it keeps going up, they're not. So that's exactly. the question. Right, right. If you ask me, like, predict exactly what will happen, I think the housing market will go down substantially. And then I think we will pump it back up because we can't have it go down. It's partially in response to you and me owning homes and having that equity, but it's largely going to be response to those corporate owners who, even if it's 10% of Newark instead of 52%, um, those people are not going to be allowed to lose tons of money because they're systematically important to the system, right? Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we would we would rather fail by making your groceries cost double than what they do today. In other words, inflation, than fail by having your house fall by fifty percent in value, which would be deflation. Yeah, and that hurts people who probably don't own a house the most. Yeah, I mean, th this is the this is the cost of having this. Um, this very growth at all costs policy, right? Like there, there, there are limits to that and there are downsides to that. And you can have the success of growth for a long period of time, but then ultimately uh, you get into this situation that we're in now. And that's, yeah, it, it will work itself out in one painful way or another. Yeah, or many. So, so have a good week, everybody. <laughs> yeah, have a good week. <laughs> yeah, um, people... Uh, obviously listen to this podcast because it's just so positive. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I do. I mean, I do think that we're all better off. Um, you know, if, if you can find a community you like and want to be there for the long term, getting a mortgage today, even where you stretch yourself, I don't think is a, is a bad thing to do. Um, if you're not if, if you're not wedded to the community, like if you don't really care about it that much, and you don't see yourself there, and you see yourself moving on, uh, housing is just a very risky investment right now. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, but before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we have been reading, watching, listening to, anything we've been up to these days. So, Chuck, what have you been up to? I'm hesitant to to bring this up because there's going to be a certain contingent of people that think that I'm in, insane. Last <laughs> week I talked about uh, that biocentrism book, and I actually went through uh -huh. a whole uh, the second book of that series, the Grand okay. Biocentric Design, and it's very, very, very good. Um, I was going to do a lot of traveling this week, and I wanted something that I could just like listen to without thinking too much. I'm going to preface this by saying. <laughs> that I have gotten all my vaccines, I've gotten all my booster shots, I have worn a mask when I ride on a plane and go in a room, I've been, I, 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 I'm, I'm not like some conspiracy person. 
So you're saying this is going to be a good down zone. Yeah. Well, I have had multiple <laughs> people tell me that I need to read the the Robert F. Kennedy book on Anthony oh, Fauci. Yeah. And I, I was prepared to be like really, really skeptical. And in fact, I am. I am skeptical. Um, but the way it was introduced to me is if 10% of this book is 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 actually like factually true, there should be people who are hauled into the town square and shot through the head. And that's a that's a very abrasive way to put it. But my gosh, I'm reading through this book. If 10% of it is true, there should be people who pay a heavy price for that. There was just a whole section on our response to HIV and AIDS and AZT. And I remember some of this stuff back from the day. I myself am not a, a medical professional. I don't know these things. I'm just a critical thinker. And a lot of the stuff that has gone on in the pandemic has struck me as a critical thinker as being like a little far on the BS scale. Yeah, like nonsensical. Like nonsensical and like, okay, I can suspend judgment for a while, but like some of this is nonsensical. And there are parts of this book that I find hard to swallow as in, okay, it's clear that, you know, the author here has, you know, I mean, he's very clear. His agenda is, is you know, he's he's got some very strong views, but there's also parts of it that kind of fill in some of the blanks for things that have, to me, have been nonsensical and in ways that are kind of powerful. So I, I feel like if you are one of these open-minded people who's like, I want to hear, it's a little bit like the law. I heard, I heard attorneys described in this way once. When you're arguing a legal case, no attorney is there making the case unbiased. What they are doing is you have one attorney who's making a very biased case in one way, and another attorney who's making a very biased case in another way. And your job as a juror is to try to kind of coalesce those distortions into reality. And I feel like if you are confused about the medical profession, the, uh, you know, our CDC, our response to pandemics, uh, how we handle viruses, you know, this is one extreme distorted view that I think can be contrasted with other extreme distorted views that we've been. And through that, maybe discern some, some truth and some reality. So I'm not endorsing the book, but I am saying I, I've, I found it worth my time to go through. That's fascinating. And I haven't read the book, but I do know what it's about. This kind of conversation does, it reminds me of um, like Dope Sick. Remember when I talked about that series um, that's all yeah. about kind of the pharmaceutical industry yeah. and the sociopathic uh, decision making and kind of psychology of why certain decisions were made um, that ultimately created this major crisis that we still have today. And I think that when you look at these kinds of systems and you assume that because something is, you know, a trusted, you know, industrial complex, basically, um, it, that it's going to make decisions in a way that is always rational. Um, it, it kind of ignores the fact that we're all humans and humans make decisions for all kinds of reasons. And, um, a lot of the times that that can become nonsensical um, and it's not a completely rational system. And so I, I personally love learning about these kinds of systems and different perspectives on how they operate because of how nonsensical things can be. Yeah. Well, I told someone who I really respect that I was reading this book and they said, oh, he's just a horrible anti-vaxxer. 
And I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking, I've been, I'm like two thirds of the way through this, and there's been t- a tiny little bit on like why, <laughs> tiny little bit on like ineffective vaccines. Most of it has been about pharmaceutical companies and their influence. Um, that's what this book has largely been about. And yeah, you know, you there's there's two uh, kind of overarching theories of medical intervention. Uh, one of them is is germ theory, uh, the idea that you know, it's viruses and germs and bacteria that cause uh, ailments. And uh, another, and, you know, and so if we just create the pharmaceuticals to fight those things, we will be healthier. And there's another uh, approach that f- deals with your terrain. It deals with your health. And it says things like you lose weight and exercise more and eat healthier and get more sleep. And prepare your body for things. And the healthier you are, the more resistant to all the uh, other things you will be. In the US, obviously, we emphasize the former, right? Um, and I think a very cynical person would say, because that's where most of the money to be made is. There's not a, there's not a lot of money to be made in telling you to eat healthier or you know exercise more. There's a lot of money to be made in giving you a, a $2,000 a, a pop, uh, you know, a month drug. Um, that's a deeply cynical view, and this book captures that. Um, but I do think that that is a worthy public discussion, right? Yeah, I mean, totally. <laughs> we entered this pandemic, and I went out and lost twenty pounds. And I've got an exercise regime, and I've I've changed my eating habits, and a yeah. lot of it was because you look at who is most susceptible to coronavirus, and it is people who are overweight. I, I hear fringe people talking about that. I don't hear mainstream people talking about that, and it's it's been confusing to me. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, and yeah, I've done the same thing. I haven't lost 20 pounds, but... <laughs> well, I needed <laughs> to regardless. Definitely work out more, but, yeah. eat healthier, which is good. And that's that's an interesting point and an interesting framing because of... Like, that's kind of how we treat cities too. It you is. know, it's more about like intervention rather than preparing, or, like being resilient essentially yeah. and preparing... Um, your terrain in that sense. So that's kind of, it's kind of an interesting framing. That's the parallel. And I'm glad you brought that up because it does feel like to me, I mean, I just got off a call with some people who were struggling with their city who wants to build this big event center to replace an old event center that has lost money for the last two decades. And, you know, you look and that that is an intervention, right? That's a, like, let's, let's build a big thing and it will create all this stuff. And I'm like, you need to prepare your terrain. You need to go out and work on your blocks and your neighborhoods and make them better places. And, you know, and the deeply cynical part of me says, if you're running bonds out of Wall Street or you're a big uh, contractor building bituminous or steel or what have you, you like the former thing. You want the big event center. You want the big project. And if you're just the person who wants to live in a nicer place and have a better life, you actually want to make your neighborhoods better. And, and it's easy for me to see that parallel, right? And I, I'm trying not to be uh, the conspiracy guy, but there's a lot of uh, there's, there's a, a lot of overlap guy. in the mentality, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that's mine. You sh- you should go. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, well, no, that's that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so mine is going to probably not be um, something that. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Will get us hate mail and <laughs> get uh, us canceled. <laughs> hopefully not. But you, I don't know if you're going to relate to it very well. But Kendrick Lamar just released a new album called Mr. Morale and the Big Stuffers. And I have been listening to it all week. I think it is his best album. It's basically like a confession album 
about his own psyche and breaking down his different therapy sessions, confronting like childhood trauma and all these issues that have carried into adulthood. And it's like very deeply human and I think very relatable to a lot of people. And musically, you know, for being like a rap hip hop album, it's like really creative and integrates all of these different instruments and classical music and jazz music throughout the album. And some of them, some of the tracks are like theatrical almost. So it's like really messy, but in a good way. And I feel like we're kind of in this time where people don't really put themselves out there in an authentic and like really brutally honest way um, that doesn't cast themselves as a good person. You know, people I yeah. think want to put Very themselves vulnerable. out there yeah. in an Instagram kind of way, but they don't put themselves out there in, in a way that is really raw like this. So yeah. I just thought it was really brutally honest and unique for this time period because there's a lot of, there is a lot of people putting themselves out there, but not in a way that is, that doesn't, ca- that ca- basically casts them as like a really flawed and messed up person, yeah. um, which I appreciate listening to. I, I will check it out. I first, I, I am going to be required by my 15-year-old to listen to Harry Styles' new album. Uh, we're recording this on Friday, and last night at 11 o'clock Central Time, he released his new album, and there was a teenage girl listening party at my house. <laughs> and um, I told my youngest that I would sit with her today, because she was up for that, but she's like, Dad, you'd really love it. So we're going to sit and listen to it. And and I've kind of prepared myself to uh, just, you know, spend time uh, appreciating that, which is, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad. It's hard for me sometimes to appreciate <laughs> my kids' music, but it's, I, and I know it's very good, but I will check this one out too. This sounds, um, your recommendation makes it sound worthy of, uh, of investing time. Well, I don't know if he... I, I'm assuming he writes all of his music. I don't know for sure, but I mean, it, lyrically, it, this is some of the best writing that I've listened to on an album. And I would recommend you to listen to it from the beginning to the end, like all the way through in order. But I can send you a song that you can just listen to if if you don't want to sit for a couple of hours and listen to it. I would not recommend listening to it with your kids. <laughs> okay. It's well, and as we're uh, as we're going out here, everybody, uh, it's maybe a good time to remind everybody that Kemet the Phantom is our uh, is the uh, is the artist who created our theme music here. Yes, Kemet Coleman, and, and and by the way, he's he's opening up a brewery in Kansas City. Serious? Oh, yep. now I'm super psyched. He is yeah. one cool guy. So, yeah, I love yeah, his he's music, super cool. and I'm grateful and... that he's uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look up two thousand vine. That's it's going to be Kansas City's first black-owned brewery, and actually opening up in uh, Shamari Benton's building that he's developing. Serious? Who's been on okay. this show before? So yeah, really, really cool story. Um, some point maybe Rachel can bring them on to tell it. Okay. Well, now we have our gathering place for the next time I come to KC. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> Okay, Uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks for joining me. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. See you, Chuck. Take care. Let me show you what I'm about to do.